G'day and welcome to Property, Australia's favourite obsession. My name's Jeremy Cowden and this is my podcast where I get to talk about all things property. And today is a ripper episode in every way. See, this is the incredible story of the very ingredient that makes possible our modern lives and science. It's revolutionised civilizations and is the basis on which our future will be built. From Egypt's pyramids to the Hubble telescope, from the world's tallest skyscraper to the footpath below, from the stained glass windows of Shut Cathedral to your iPhone, it's the third most consumed substance on Earth, only behind air and water. It shelters us, empowers us, engages and inspires us and is the ingredient that makes our lives possible. See, today we're here to talk about sand. Sand is a super substance which provides endless examples of continually being the basis of our productivity gains. Throughout history, sand has interacted with our five drivers of property. Technology, infrastructure, population, government-granted licences, and of course, credit. And this is what we're here to talk about today, how sand has impacted our lives. Because without sand, there is no modern civilization. Our entire civilization and complete economic development is based upon concrete, glass and silica, and that requires sand. We always want to think about property with respect to our five underlying property drivers, remembering that the advancements in human productivity leads to increased profitability, and this increased profitability will result in the increased value that someone will pay to get hold of a piece of land. Sand is the basis of unfathomable amounts of infrastructure that's been built throughout the world. Sand has resulted in gigantic technological gains, and I'm talking here about the advent of glass which led to the development of windows, the lens and hence the microscope. Sand has enabled the mass urbanisation of populations by creating high density living, sewers, roads and transportation access. It enables those with government granted licences to mine it for untold riches, and as we'll get on to later, it has led to the emergence of a sand mafia. And of course, gazillions of dollars of credit have been extended for projects all built with concrete. It's true, sand has transformed civilization. Sand is the most important solid substance in the world. And here today to talk to me about sand is award-winning journalist and author of the book, The World in the Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization, Vince Beisner, welcome to Property, Australia's Favourite Obsession. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be here. Now, Vince, you wrote a book, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. Now, I don't want to get into straight, straight away about how you think it transformed civilization or necessarily why you think that sand is the most important solid substance in the world. But there's a really important backstory here. So I want to ask you, how did this all start for you? And when did you realise that sand played such a critical role in our modern civilization? Yeah, it's it's kind of a crazy story. I just fell into it by accident, really. I mean, so I'm a, I'm a freelance journalist, so I'm always looking for a good story. Um, so I read a lot of, uh, you know, kind of out of the out of the way publications and a lot of uh, foreign press. And one day I just ran across an article in a in an Indian newspaper about a farmer who had been murdered over sand. And I just thought, what, what in the world? Why in the world would anybody get killed over sand? Who cares about sand, right? It just seems like the most trivial thing in the world. Um, but anyway, so I, I wound up getting Wired magazine to send me over to India to, to kind of get to the bottom of it. Because what I once I started looking into it and digging around and doing a little research, I realized, like you just said, sand, even though most of us barely ever think about it, it's actually incredibly important uh, modern commodity. And that's because it's the raw material that our cities are made out of, right? Because, <clears throat> I mean, if you look around you, you know, wherever your listeners are right now, the floor underneath you, the ceiling over your head, the walls around you are almost certainly made out of concrete. And concrete is basically just sand and gravel that's been stuck together, right? All the windows in all those buildings are made out of sand as well. Glass is sand that's been melted down. All the roads that connect all those buildings also made out of sand. They're made out of concrete or they're made out of asphalt. So in, in other words, without sand, you can't build modern cities. And that's what's driving this incredible demand uh, for it. It's now the most consumed natural resource on the planet, except for water. 
So that is unbelievable, that, isn't it? That is that is crazy, a right? staggering fact. Yeah. So anyway, we'll, we can get into this in more detail, but but come to find out that because there's so much demand, there's also a black market in sand in a lot of places, and organized crime has gotten into it, and that's why you have people are actually getting murdered. Hundreds of people have been murdered over sand in the last few years. So all of that was complete news to me, and I just thought this is this is an amazing story that the very few people know about, and. Uh, and I'm going to, you know, I wanted to, to, to let the world know. So we'll follow up on that idea of, um, you know, how on earth there could be, you know, deaths over sand. But can we maybe just step right back in time and, and, and think back as to, I mean, sand is a, a commodity that has been used in, you know, ancient civilizations, you know, forever to, to build any civilization that is um, of any size or magnitude has had sand as its you know, foundation component, hasn't it? Um, I don't know. That's a mighty big statement. I mean, sand has definitely been a, been a, a very important building material for for many civilizations, right? The Egyptians used sand to help build the pyramids. The ancient Romans uh, made concrete, used concrete like crazy. They built roads and and their colosseums and 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 port facilities. Uh, and in fact, the Pantheon in Rome which is 2,000 years old, that, the, the roof of that thing is made out of concrete that's still standing today. And again, concrete is really just sand and gravel that's been stuck together. So it's played an important role definitely throughout history. But if you look at like the Mayan civilizations, et cetera, all those big civilizations, I mean, you, you can't construct you know, a major city without um, you know, sand, can you? Well, <laughs> again, I hesitate to make... I hesitate to make a, a statement that broad. I mean, I, you know, I just, I don't know what like ancient Chinese cities were made of and so on, but I'll tell you this, the modern world, the world mm. since the, of the last 150 years is entirely dependent on sand, right? Whereas up to, you know, the, the turn of the 19th, the end of the late 19th century, we were building things out of brick and out of stone and out of wood all of those building materials all over the world, every country on earth has been completely eclipsed by concrete and glass. Those are by far the most uh, widely used building materials in the world. In other words, concrete sand in the form of concrete has, has completely taken over the world. Every country on earth really now relies on it. But it even goes further than that, doesn't it, Vince? Because it's not just concrete and glass, but... Uh, well, actually, let's let's take the whole glass concept first. That I mean, the glass. The, we talk about concrete as a construction method, but glass in itself has had huge amounts of technological advancements. I mean, it, when we think of you know glass, we think of windows, but it goes much much further than that, doesn't it? You know, microscopes, telescopes, and the other, you know, and what those technological advancements allowed in you know us understanding our world our, our natural environment around us i mean it it, it was the basis of uh, a, a lot of science and and a lot of you know scientific and and health-based discoveries absolutely i mean glass all by itself is is worth a book i mean it's again it's something that we barely ever think about but it has been absolutely transformative and two things that you mentioned really blew my mind while i was doing this research which is the lens, right? So lenses are just glass that's been ground down that give us this power, like really like superpowers to see things miles, hundreds, thousands of miles from us and also to see things that are far too small to see with the naked eye, right? Microscopes and telescopes. Without those things, without the lens, the scientific revolution never would have happened. Those two things are the cornerstones of, this, of the scientific revolution. And you think about the impact that all the discoveries that have flowed out of microscopes and telescopes that have enabled us to do, it's been absolutely transformative. But it even goes further than that, like beyond this incredible impact that it's had on our, on our scientific knowledge, just in the way that you and I and, and billions of people all over the world live their lives, glass has completely reshaped how we, for instance, how we build uh, our homes. I mean, up until... Up until about 120 years ago, glass was pretty expensive. It was it was uh, hard to manufacture, and it was quite expensive. Um, 
once we figured out sort of how to mass manufacture glass, that's when we were, that gave us the power to build glass skyscrapers and huge glass windows, right? Like sliding glass doors, which seems like such a trivial thing. But if you think about it, that completely reshaped architecture all over the world. The idea of like a big patio door and also glass that was strong enough to keep out the cold that really, or to keep out the heat. That's a big part of what's made it possible for, well, for settlement in, in places like Australia and the American Southwest that are really like mm-hmm. inhospitable, right? There's really hot desert climates, but you can build a, a house out of concrete and glass and insulated glass that makes it possible for you to live in a place like that. So the impact of glass has just been in so many different ways um, has really transformed life on the planet. And again, glass is literally nothing but sand that's been melted down with a few chemicals thrown into the mix. We could also add uh, taxation there as too, Vince. Um, you know, that uh, the advent of uh, William III's window tax um, in 16, the 1690s, um, the UK residents were actually taxed based on the amount of windows in their houses. So there you go. There's a, That's a new one on me. That's, there you go. There's one for yeah. you. It's, um, and that, I guess, underpins the whole point of this discussion that, you know, we talk, uh, inf, you know, just continuously about our, our five drivers of technology, infrastructure, population, um, government granted license and credit. And when we think about, well, I guess maybe we don't think about sand in those terms, but when you stop and actually think about sand, I mean, sand has had a huge impact in all of those areas, except maybe credit. We'll maybe put credit to the side. But everything else, I mean, the technology that's come out of sand, the infrastructure that's been built, the ability of sand to create modern civilizations that has shaped the way in which populations, um, you know, we interact and, and we live our lives. And, of course, the government granted licenses for those to, um, uh, to, to, to mine. I mean, sand, as you said, it is... It it absolutely has shaped our um, our modern cities, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, our cities are literally made out of sand. I mean, if you want to talk about infrastructure, what do we mean by infrastructure? We're usually talking about buildings. Again, like I said, most modern buildings are made at least partly out of concrete and glass, which is sand. Roads, which are made out of concrete or asphalt, which are nothing but sand and gravel that's been stuck together. Dams airports, uh, you know, all these things that, you know, that we really think of as, as the, the physical infrastructure are literally made of sand, millions and millions of tons of sand. Um, and if you want to talk about technology, um, the silicon chips that powered the modern digital revolution are also made from sand, mm-hmm. right? Silicon, so it turns out sand has an incredibly important role in the computer story. So first of all, silicon, uh, as in Silicon Valley, as in silicon chips, is derived from sand. Most sand on the, on the planet is quartz. Quartz is a form of silicon dioxide. Okay, and to get this, the ultra, ultra pure silicon that you need for silicon chips, you start with sand. More than that, on the side, sort of parallel to that, um, to make making the silicon for those chips is a, it's a very elaborate and complicated process. I, there's a whole chapter about it in my book. But in a nutshell, part of it involves uh, you have to melt down uh, silicon in ultra pure quartz crucibles. You need to have this incredibly pure quartz uh, crucibles, like pots, basically to melt that silicon down in. The sand for those the 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 material that they make those crucibles out of, and I'm talking about the crucibles that make pretty much every computer chip manufactured on earth. Yeah. The quartz for those crucibles all comes from one place, from one uh, uh, collection of sand in, in a backwater county in North Carolina here in the United States, it's the purest quartz sand that's ever been found anywhere on earth. And it is absolutely crucial to make those crucibles without which you could not make silicon chips. So really at every phase of the, of the silicon process, sand is, is absolutely critical. And wow. another step further beyond that, going back to glass, fiber optic cables, right? Which are the cables, the, the physical, uh, uh, you know, 
highways, the physical cords that carry most of the internet traffic, they're made of glass. And they're made of a super high, a very, very, you know, specific form of glass that is, again, ultimately comes from sand. So in a very direct way, sand completely underpins modern digital technology. And it just touches us. It just, the more you look at it, the more you realize it touches us. Paper, toothpaste, cosmetics, paintings, um, you know, coats, wines, um, all the synthetic grass, uh, manufacturing ceramics, detergents. Uh, filtration of water. Uh, I mean, I was quite blown away when I started to look at this. Um, it, even it's used, you know, it's an essential part of uh, the fracking process and the extraction of oil and gas. Um, and I had to laugh with, you know, it's even reminds you of a bad day at the beach. You know, we've got sand in our pants, don't we? I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's how right. we keep our pants up. It's, uh, that's right. The elastic in your underwear is made, is derived from sand. It's just absolutely mind-boggling. Um, I, as I said, I was really taken back with this. Um, you know, the concrete, the, 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 the step towards, you know, sand and concrete, you know, made a lot of sense, but it goes a lot, lot further than that. Um, and I can understand, you know, why you get so excited about it. Um, I just wanted to maybe just go back to that idea of, of the quartz as to you know, how, how can we be taught, like, why is sand so important when there's just, I get that we use a lot of it, but there's a lot of sand around. As you said, quartz is the most abundant material. Um, you know, what are we, what are we worried about, um, Vince? Why, why, what, what's the concern? So here's the problem. There, there is a lot of sand on the planet. Like you said, it's, it's actually the most abundant thing on the surface of the earth. But again, we use more of it than anything else in the earth. We use 50 billion tons of sand and gravel every year. That's enough to cover the entire state of, of California. I don't know exactly how to translate that into Australian, but you get the idea. It's, it's a, lot. a lot, an yeah, unbelievable yeah, yeah. amount. And ultimately, there's a lot of it, but, but the amount is ultimately finite, right? So what's happening with sand is we are starting to run out in a lot of places in the sense that it's very similar to what's happening with oil and gas, right? There's still lots of oil and natural gas in the planet, but the stuff that's really easy to get at, the stuff that's close to the surface and easy to get, that stuff is mostly gone. It's mostly tapped out. And so we're having to go further and further and do more and more damage to the environment to get at the stuff that's left. That's why in, for oil, we're having to do things like fracking and deep offshore drilling and all these kinds of, you know, much more difficult, much more dangerous ways to extract uh, oil. Well, the same exact thing is happening with sand. A lot of um, the sources that, that were the easiest to get are pretty much gone, and we're having to go further and further and do more and more harm to get at the stuff that's left. And that's why you're starting to see really serious shortages of sand in a lot of areas, and that's what's created the opening for the black market that I was talking about before, where people are going, where you have criminal gangs going into places where sand mining is banned. It's, you're not allowed to extract sand from the riverbed here or from the lake bottom there because it will destroy that river or that lake, but they just do it anyway and tear up the sand and, uh, so that they can sell it because there's so much demand for it. What does that mining look like? What, what does a, how is sand mined? Can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. So that's a great question. So first of all, so to, under, to get a, a sense of that, let me just explain real quickly where that sand comes from. So, um, so sand that we're, the sand that we're talking about is mostly quartz sand, right? That's the most common kind. Sand can be any kind of, of stone, any kind of stone that's been crushed down to, to little pieces. It can even be little bits of ground up shells, seashells and whatnot. But the stuff that we're most concerned about, the stuff that we use is quartz. And quartz is mostly just little tiny pieces of mountains. What happens is you've got mountains and other rock formations um, that are made of quartz and granite and other rocks. Uh, and they're constantly being eroded. The wind and the rain, you know, bash away at those things and are constantly chipping off little pieces of them, grains, that the rains then carry down the mountainside into rivers, and then the rivers carry them far and wide across the land and eventually out to the oceans to where the rivers meet the sea, which is why you have so much sand on beaches, all right? So sand gets built up 
all along that route. So you have a lot of sand in the beds of those rivers, on the bottoms of those rivers. You have sand up on the banks of those rivers. Over time, those rivers change their courses. So you have big deposits of sand left behind in places where there used to be rivers. And you get sand on beaches and in the, on the bottom of the ocean itself. So where do we, how do we get that sand? So we get that sand from all of those places. Um, in some places, we dig it up from the, from the bottom of, uh, of bodies of water. That's probably the most common way to get sand, right? It's very easy, very cheap. You just put a big barge, a big dredger out in the middle of a, of a big river, like, you know, like the Ganges or the Mekong or, um, you know, any large river, drop a big pipe, a big suction pipe down to the bottom of that river and just like a big straw and just, just suck that sand right up off the bottom. Yeah. Very easy to do. It's cheap. You get high quality sand that way. The problem is, um, if you're not very careful when you're doing that, you can do massive environmental damage. First of all, when you suck up the bottom of a river, obviously you've just destroyed the habitat of whatever was living down there, right? Whatever kind of fish or other aquatic creatures or plants or whatever were down there, you've just, you know, wiped out their habitat. Um, second is, you've, you, when you do that, you stir up all the other silt and muck and whatever else was down there, and that clouds up the water, really like throws all this stuff up into the water, which can suffocate Again, whatever kind of fish or other creatures were swimming around in that water. Third, all that stirred up silt blocks the sunlight from getting down and, and nourishing the plants. So that kind of sand mining has destroyed coral reefs, mangrove forests, seagrass beds all over the world. It has also decimated fish populations and also populations of birds and other creatures that live on those fish. It's done huge damage. So we so that's one way we get it, the most common and probably the most destructive way that we get it. Uh, we also dig up lots of sand from from land pits, just terrestrial pits on land, um, which is usually less harmful, but can also uh, you know create air pollution. Uh, you can have runoff that can damage uh, groundwater and so on. So they would be um, from like they would be ancient riverbeds and stuff that we'd be digging up there. Yeah, exactly. But those riverbeds, you know, by now they're there to get at them, you have to rip up whatever you know, topsoils top, and stuff, topsoil, yeah. vegetation, forests, farmland, even in a lot of places. So, um, yeah, so we, we do all those things. Um, we are, we are doing all those things all over the world. And like I say, if it's done well, if it's done carefully, um, you can really keep that harm to a minimum. You know, it's really no worse than any other kind of extractive industry. But the problem is in a lot of places around the world, especially in the developing world, um, where there's A, a lot fewer regulations, and B, much weaker enforcement of those regulations, you're seeing a lot of damage in places like India, China, Indonesia, um, Nigeria, really all over the developing world, lots and lots of harm being done. So that's, I mean... That's in the riverbeds. What about in the sea? I mean, obviously, when we're, we're, we're sucking it up from the, from the seabeds as well, you're going to have the same issues of the destruction of the ecology um, on, the, on the ground, the, the, the murking of waters, etc. But, um, you know, you take that sand away, and that surely has to have a flow-on um, erosion effect for the beaches themselves, won't it, when you're taking it, you know, from the, from the open waters? Yeah, it can do. I mean, ironically, one of the, the number one things that we that we use ocean sand for is what's called beach nourishment, which is replenishing beaches. This is a huge industry all over the world, um, and uh, you know, is is really driven by the real estate market that um, you know that you guys talk about. Basically, what's happening um, is beaches are constantly eroding, right? Always wind and the waves are always washing those sand graves out into the open ocean. But in the natural course of things, they're also constantly being replenished in two ways. One is rivers. Like I said, rivers are always carrying more sand down onto those beaches. And two, ocean currents uh, carry sand from one place down to another. The problem is human beings are now blocking both of those processes in many places. So with rivers, we're scooping out, we're digging so much sand out of rivers that there's less of it getting to beaches, A. B, we're also building dams all along those rivers, which block the flow of sand. 
And along the coasts, we're also building so much infrastructure, so many, you know, marinas and jetties and other stuff like that, that it's blocking the flow of that coastal sand. So in many, many places, natural erosion continues, natural replenishment does not. So how I can to tell you, that? sorry, sorry, Vincent, from a personal point of view, I grew up locally at a place called West Beach and... Mm-hmm. Um, my dad sailed uh, at West Beach Sailing Club for, for many, many years. Um, and in his latter years of sailing, um, a, a developer put a groin out into the ocean um, a couple of k's um, down the coast. And the sailing club really kicked up a stink about the impacts that that would have on the seagrasses and the flow of sand, etc. And mm. the developer had all these reports commissioned, etc., to say there'd be you know no natural... Uh, or there'd be no problems, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we're talking probably, you know, 30 years or so later, there's no beach at West Beach anymore. Really? It's And it's really, really... It used to be a beautiful, pristine beach. Um, and, in fact, they've got so much problem now with... Because there's obviously the Esplanade, and on the Esplanade is the local surf club, and they've got rocks and stuff that uh, that, you know, sort of trying to create some sort of buffer against the waves but the 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 environmental damage that's now occurring under the surf club and under the esplanade they're actually frightened about the road itself and it's all because of the sands no longer there there's no beach exactly right so that's i mean that's a perfect example so that precise same thing is happening at hundreds god knows maybe thousands of beaches all over the world so in a lot of places um they're they're fighting that back so the what by doing what they call beach nourishment, which basically means creating artificial beach. You just bring sand from somewhere else and dump it uh, on your beach. So Miami Beach, for instance, is a completely artificial beach. It's completely man-made. And the same goes for most of the beaches in Southern Florida. So what they've been doing for the last 20, 30 years there, the beaches have been eroding because of the exact same process that you just described. They would just go out into the into the ocean, just go offshore a little ways, dig up a bunch of sand from the bottom of the ocean, bring it back, dump it on the beach, problem solved. Problem is, by now, in southern Florida, in all of Miami County, and in all of Broward County, which is where you have Fort Lauderdale and other very famous beaches, they have used up all of the ocean sand. There is no more sand available to them in the ocean. So now they're having to bring it in by truck from hundreds of miles away, they have to go way inland, wow. dig up sand by the truckload, haul it to the coast, and then dump it on the on the coast. Yeah, so it's a it's, it's a big industry. It's a multi billion dollar industry of beach renourishment. And I was horrified to learn that um, in our consumption of sand, there's literally islands that have disappeared, haven't there? Yeah, so another one of the big things that we use sand for that we haven't talked about yet is, is land reclamation, which is building artificial land, um, which is something that, you know, human beings have been doing for, for centuries, but we're doing it on a much bigger scale now than ever before. And again, that land is mostly made out of sand. So a really great example, uh, a really obvious example is is the palm, you know, those palm mm-hmm. islands in Dubai, mm-hmm. Dubai. you those crazy yeah. palm tree-shaped Islands, those are nothing but sand. They're literally millions of tons of sand that they scooped up from the bottom of the Persian Gulf and dumped in the shallow waters right offshore and sculpted into these crazy man-made islands, which then become real estate. They become land, extremely valuable land. That kind of thing, because you know, because now we have, uh, thanks to modern technology, we have extremely powerful dredges and, uh, and equipment that enables us to, to pull up huge amounts of that sand and then place it very precisely using satellite guidance and so on. So that kind of land reclamation has become a very big business. Now, right in the part of world, the world where you guys are, the biggest land reclaimer around is Singapore, right? Mm. Singapore is a tiny but very rich country. It's basically just yeah. a city state. They need more land very desperately. Uh, they don't have any land. They don't. Ha- they also don't have any sand because they're so small. So what they've been doing for the last 20, 30 years is building artificial land, like hundreds of square miles of artificial land, which they build by buying sand from all their neighbors, from Indonesia, Vietnam, Laos, millions and tons of some tons of sand. Well, that there's been so much demand for that sand. Singapore has has 
has bought up so much sand that number one, like you said, 24 islands in Indonesia have completely disappeared. They were literally mined out of existence. 24. 24 islands no longer wow. exist. And the substance of those islands is now real estate in Singapore. Now that wow. damage has, yeah. So that kind of thing got so severe, has gotten so severe that pretty much every country around Singapore has by now banned or at least severely restricted the sale of sand to Singapore because it was doing such such a number on their environment and their own sand supplies. So how big is this industry? The land reclamation industry is, I mean, many, many billions of dollars, for sure, for sure. What I mean, about the sand industry in itself? I mean, I mean, so how, uh, yeah, your mind starts to... To, <laughs> to boggle a little bit here, but yeah, what are we talking, Vince? So nobody knows for sure. There is no central uh, accounting of it the way that there is for, for other industries like oil and gas and so on. But uh, the estimates are it's about $130 billion a year industry. We put it all together, sand mining worldwide, everything from like, you know, a bunch of guys shoveling beach sand into the back of their pickup truck to you know, multinational corporations that, that run, you know, 600-foot-long dredgers, put it all together, it's about $130 billion a year, U.S. dollar per year industry. Big, in other words. Big, big industry, isn't it? And is our, like, is consumption, excluding the land reclamation, is, is our consumption as a um, developed society is it slowing down or is it because obviously you know you you look at developing countries like china and and india and and obviously they have to have huge levels of sand consumption because of the construction that's going on within their economies how does that relate to what we're doing in more developed areas so and that's a really great question it's it's a really important thing to to get your head around um so in the developing world sand consumption has more or less plateaued. So we're still using a hell of a lot of it, um, but the the amounts are not really increasing. It tends to fluctuate with the economy, right? When the economy is good, people are building more, there's more demand. When it's, when it's down, there's less demand. Um, like I know here in the United States, we use about a billion tons per year, roughly. For the last 10 years, it's, it's been hovering right around that level which is a lot, but it is nothing compared to the amounts that they've been using in China or, or India. Um, and that's because, as you say, like our infrastructure, our concrete-based, sand-based infrastructures are largely built, right? Our cities yeah. exist, our highways exist, our dams have been built. In, but in the rest of the world, they're just catching up, right? And that's why they're consuming such incredible amounts because their their populations are urbanizing. Just like happened in, in the Western world a hundred years ago, people are pouring out of the out of the countryside, out of the agricultural life and moving into cities. The thing is now what's happening is it that's happening on a much bigger scale and in a much shorter time frame. So to give you an idea, um, in nineteen fifty there are about 750 million people around the world living in cities. Today, that number is about 4 billion living in cities and growing by the tens of millions every year. In fact, we are adding the equivalent of about nine New York cities to the planet every single year. And that's what's really driving the massive consumption of sand is the need to build roads and office towers and shopping malls and housing for all those yeah, hospitals airports just you just keep on going that's all exactly. that infrastructure needs to be built exactly exactly so I mean, here's my favorite mind-blowing statistic china all by itself in three years from 2011 to 2014 used more cement just in those three years than the united states did in the entire 20th century but just yeah, stop and think about that for a second right think about Every skyscraper, every sidewalk, every runway, every hydroelectric dam that the United States built in the 20th century, well, China has used more cement than that just in the last few years. 
it's quite it, it's quite amazing, isn't it? I heard you quote also um, the stat of you know we use enough concrete to to build a wall thirty meters wide, thirty meters tall around the equator every year, which every again, single I mean, year. That is uh, uh, that, that's a that's a mind-boggling fact, isn't it? That's a that's a lot yeah. of concrete. It's an lot awful concrete. lot of concrete. Yeah, and um, you know, and again, the raw material of that concrete—it's basically just—it's nothing but little rocks, sand, and gravel that's been stuck together. So, how does um, let's start in the in in the developed world, uh, Vince? How do governments um, manage this? You know, sand. Um, as a resource? Well, that's a really good question. Um, the answer it, is it really varies a lot. Um, and up until recently, you know, relatively recently, they really didn't manage it much at all. So, for instance, um, there, so in the United States, at least, there are no nationwide, there's no federal uh, regulations about sand mining at all. It's all, um, it's really, most of it is handled at the local level, at states and at the county level. So it's a real hodgepodge. So the state of Texas, for instance, also in, in the entire state, there were no regulations about sand mining at all until about 10 years ago. Because the thinking was, you know, sand, who cares? There's so much of it, right? We don't even need to regulate this stuff. Um, so it's a real mix. You find, um, you know, some places, uh, you know, some counties, some states, you know, do a much more, a better and more thorough job of regulating it than, than in other places. Um, by and large, I will say, you know, in, in the Western world, uh, generally speaking, we do a pretty good job of, of regulating, of mitigating the environmental impacts, of saying you can only, you know, take so much sand from this place or go down so deep in this river. There definitely are problems, environmental issues, and, and even crime that goes along with sand mining in the West, but, but by and large, they're not nearly as extreme as you find in the developing world. Um, and there it's, 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 it can be two things, right? One is, like I said, in some places, they really lack, they don't have the regulations in place. In other places, um, like in many parts of India, they've got great environmental laws on the books, like really good laws saying, you know, you can only take sand from this area and you can only take so much over such and such a time, but nobody pays attention to them. People break those rules all the time because there's so much corruption in the system. It's really easy to just spread around a little money to the local inspectors, the local government officials, the local cops, whoever, and they'll just turn a blind eye and you can take whatever you want. That so this, happens all over the So place. this is a point I was going to bring up before when we're talking about the environmental side of things, that really crime is, you know, from an environmental, it has a massive impact, doesn't it? I mean, the black market in sand, um, you know, the, the sand mafia is is you know, causing enormous amounts of problems um, environmentally, but also socially as well, um, that the problems that, that, that it perpetuates. That I wanted to ask that question about, you know, is that black market in sand, is it restricted to those developing com uh, countries that have high sand consumption with, you know, low standards of living, um, high levels of corruption and, you know, poor regulation um, and enforcement? Is it, is, is the mafia, you know, just to those, you know, those developing countries? So that's, that's definitely where it's worst is in the developing world. I mean, uh, India, as far as I can tell, it has it, has it the worst of anywhere. I mean, you've literally had hundreds of murders by the sand mafias there. They call them the sand mafia there, which, you know, sounds kind of funny, but really these guys are no joke. Like I said, they've, they've killed hundreds of people. And I'm talking about journalists, activists, uh, government officials, even police officers, um, and many, many more that have been assaulted, threatened, beaten up, that kind of thing. Um, also, you've got a real problem with uh, accidents, like hundreds of people have been killed in when sand pits collapse on them or when overloaded trucks tip over, that kind of thing. So just from lack of regulation. So India is the worst, as far as I can tell, but also there have been, there have been killings over sand 
in Mexico, in Indonesia, in Ghana, in many other countries around the world. So I haven't, there's, as far as I can tell, there's nothing like that kind of violent crime in the developed world, but there is, there is a certain amount of, of black market sand dealing definitely in the Western world. Like here in the United States, um, in New York State, for instance, they've got a pretty significant problem of, of illegal sand mining where what will happen is these guys, uh, 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 miners, uh, contractors will go out to uh, Long Island on New York, which is where you, they get a lot of their sand that built New York City comes from Long Island. They go out onto Long Island, illegally dig up a bunch of sand, you know, that's too close to a river or too close to the beach or whatever, dig the sand up, haul it into New York City, sell it under the table to some contractor there, and then the contract, and then fill up their trucks with toxic waste from the, from the construction <laughs> site, and then fill up the sand, the hole that they just made in the sand mine, dump the toxic waste in that and cover it up. So it's like a, a twofer. Two, a two wrongs twofer. make a worse <laughs> wrong. <laughs> two wrongs can make you some good money anyway, you know? All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what percentage of the market would be black market sand compared to legitimate sand? I know that would be a, a difficult question to answer, but could you have a stab at it? You know, really nobody knows for sure. It definitely varies country by country and region by region. Um, it's, I, I certainly don't think it's most of it. It's a, you know, it's, it's some fraction of it, maybe five, 10, maybe 20% at the outside in, in some places. I mean, it's big. It's a, it's because mm. remember, we're talking about an enormous, you know, $130 billion a year global market. So even if it's only 5%, that's still billions of dollars worth of sand. So I guess I, I, it's, I, uh, it's quite an amazing. It just, it just, the more I think about it, the more amazing I find the whole concept, you know, the, the impact that it has. And I mean, your story started with Polly Rand Shoham, didn't it? Um, that's, yeah, so he was the murderer. He was the guy that I was talking about at the very beginning, Paliram Chohan. He was a he was a farmer in a little village, a little farming village just south of Delhi. And what happened to him is is very typical of the kind of murders that that happen over it. In a nutshell, um, like I said, he was a farmer in this little village uh, near Delhi, and Delhi, of course, is exploding. Right, it's one of these you know developing country cities that's just growing by leaps and bounds. There's huge demand for construction materials, including sand. Anyway, one day, the, the, the bunch of thugs came to the village and just seized about 200 acres of the village's land, ripped up their crops, stripped away the topsoil, and started digging up the sand to sell it to developers up in Delhi. And Paliram Chohan was kind of a, a leader in his, in his village, and he sort of helped organize the other villagers to protest and to go to the police and go to the courts and do everything they could to try to get these guys to stop and give them back their land. But they couldn't, they just couldn't get any action because like I said, there's so much corruption in the system. These guys were just spreading around bribes. But at a certain point he did start to really annoy them. So the sand miners took them, took him aside at one point and said, look, all this ruckus that you're making, it's really, it's bad for business. You're, you're really starting to get under our skin. So just cut it out or we're going to kill you. But he didn't stop. In fact, he, he reported that threat to the local police. And just a few days later, three guys kicked in the door of his house and shot him dead in his own bed. So that's, it's very tragic, but it's also very typical of the kinds of, of killings that's happening, the kind of violence that's generated by the, by the sand trade in India. And I guess at the end of the, at the end of the day, it shows the money that's involved. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. Uh, yeah, that uh, people are threatened. So, Vince, tell me this. Uh, I googled around and and did a little bit of research, and it's estimated, if I'm going to get this right, seven quant quintillion five hundred trillion grains of sands are on the world's beaches. Yeah. So that's like a quintillion is a billion billion. So as 
that's that, it, it's, it's an awful so lot. many zeros you can't even it wouldn't even it's fit it, on a page. Nineteen figures. Actually, I'll tell you another little interesting, um, uh, a little interesting thing that I don't know. You may or not know Vince. I I wrote a blog a few years ago um, called "It's Only a Few Grains of Rice," and if you actually take a grain of rice on a chessboard, so there's sixty four. Um, squares on a chessboard. If you take a grain on the first uh, square and you double it every every square, so two in the next and four in the next and 16, two, um, 256, etc. By the time you get to the 64th square, you're at nine quintillion grains of rice. So wow. that's nearly just a little more than what we've got on our beaches. But with so much with so much sand. Um, and that's just on the beaches. And then there's deserts. I mean, there's, you know, there's even more sand in the deserts. Really, what are we carrying on about? Right. So, um, so the, the sand in the, de- there is a huge amount of sand in deserts. Absolutely. The problem is it's basically useless to us. Um, so the reason for that is desert sand grains, the actual grains are shaped differently. They're much smoother and rounder than the sand that you find at the bottom of rivers or the bottom of lakes, the stuff that we make concrete out of. That's because it's been eroded by wind rather than water. And the problem is to make concrete, which is the number one thing that we use sand for, that that desert sand doesn't bind together because it's because of its round shape. It just doesn't lock together. It's like the difference between trying to build something out of millions of little marbles as opposed to millions of little bricks so that the river sand is more angular. It's got edges and corners, and so it locks together and makes a more stable structure. So all that vast amount of sand that's out in the world's deserts, basically useless to us. It's a bit sad, really, isn't it? Can it we, really is. Can we crush it to make it more angular? Is that, um, you know, what are our alternatives here, Vince? So there are... Um, so there are alternatives. I mean, first of all, indeed, we can just make more sand, right? We can just crush up, crush rocks down to individual grains and use that. And that is happening in some places. Problem is it's much more expensive to do that than it is to, uh, to harvest uh, naturally occurring sand. I mean, if you think about the size of the machine that you would need to smash a granite boulder down into sand grains, that's a big piece of machinery. It needs a lot of energy to run it. It's very expensive to do that. Um, you can, there are, uh, there is a lot of research going on into um, alternatives to sand, ways of making concrete with things like shredded plastic or even shredded bamboo. Um, and there's some, some really interesting research going on around that. Hasn't made much of a dent in the market yet, but there's what about some encouraging the, signs there. What about the ply scrapers that we're just starting to see that, you know, timber skyscrapers are, I noticed there was one last year, 18 stories that opened up in Norway. Um, I saw that British Columbia has just doubled the height limit allowable for, um, you know, timber towers, etc. Um, so they've got one on the cards there of 40 stories. Is that likely to make uh, an impact? Yeah, I think that can have a dent. I mean, definitely the, you know, the whole engineered wood thing, like, you know, making, they're making more and more buildings out of that kind of, engineered wood that's way stronger than naturally occurring wood. I think that can definitely help. I think, you know, there are lots of, uh, there are, you know, many alternatives that, that can make a difference. Bamboo too. Like they're, they're using uh, more and more bamboo in a lot of Asian countries Mm. as a, as a building material. So I think all of those things can help and are helping. But at the end of the day, if you ask me, there's really only one long-term solution, which is, that um, we have to sort of reframe the question. The question isn't how can we use less sand? The question is how can we use less of everything, right? Because we know we've, this is a familiar story, right? We know that we're, we're running out of fresh water. We're running out of trees. We're taking too many fish out of the oceans. And now come to find out we're taking too much sand out of the planet. But to my mind, these are not separate issues. They're all part, they're all symptoms of the same problem, which is just that we're just consuming too much. The way of life that we have, that we enjoy here in the Western world, just cannot be sustained in a world of 7 billion people that's on track to hit 9 billion more very soon. We've just got to find ways to live our lives and build our cities 
that ways that consume less, that use fewer natural resources across the board, not only sand, but of everything else. And I, I think that's doable, um, but I, I think that's the only real long-term solution. It's probably a good spot to wrap it up, um, Vince. Is there anything else that you'd like to add um, that I haven't asked you or we haven't covered with regards to sand? I think that was, you know, we, we covered a lot of terrain. That was great. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I can't believe we've sat here and spoken for the last three quarters of an hour about sand. Um, <laughs> and I can't believe now that it, I'm just become a bit fascinated with it everywhere I look around. I just, I just think of the impact of, of sand, the plaster on the walls. And, you know, when you're walking down the footpaths, I, I have to say it's changed my view on the world. Um, it's really been quite an eye-opener. So I hope our listeners have, you know, found the same thing because, you know, when you do start to stop and look, it's, it is an amazing, an amazing element, isn't it? It's a, uh, and, and as we said, well, the, the history and the technology that it impacts as well is, it's not just the concrete, but the medical and technological advancements that it's, uh, it's encapsulated is, is truly staggering. Yeah, it's, it really is amazing. And I'm, Glad to hear it. Vince, if uh, people want to look you up, um, vincebeiser.com, uh, V-I-N-C-E-B-E-I-S-E-R.com. Is that the best place for uh, people to get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. You can find, uh, you know, you can email me through that website or, you know, find my, my Twitter handle and my Facebook page. Yeah, always happy to hear from, from readers, from folks who are interested. I have to say thank you very much. You are um, you, you've been such a pleasure to have on, and I really appreciate um, you know how uh, uh, how easy you've made the the whole podcast. Your, your book, um, "The World in a Grain: The Story of Sand and How It Transforms Civilization." When I first saw that title, I was a little bit, mm, you know, can it's it not really the be... most promising subject? <laughs> is it? <laughs> I know, believe me, I know. I don't know how you convinced your publishers that you were going to get away with writing a book about sand. That would have been a very interesting conversation to have sat in on. But I'd thoroughly recommend that listeners, you know, do go out and have a look. Um, as I said, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. Um, let's wrap it up there, Vince. Uh, thank All you right. very much for joining me today. Um, and, yeah, I was going to say, let's, uh, let's really have a stop and have a think about sand now. All right. Sounds great. Well, thanks for having me on, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Look, you're very welcome. Of course, we're here to help you on your property journey. So feel free to get in contact with us with your questions and queries. And don't forget to like and subscribe or leave a rating for Property, Australia's favourite obsession. I've been your host, Jeremy Cannon. Until next time, let's keep obsessing about property. Any opinions or recommendations expressed should be considered general in nature, as they do not consider your personal objectives or financial circumstances. History and past performance do not guarantee future performance. Jeremy Cowan and Cowan and Plaque Proprietary Limited are authorised representatives of PGW Financial Services, Proprietary Limited, AFSL 384713.